0: Well, here we are, the end of the first book. It's a milestone of sorts for here at Trinity. It's the first book we've gone through all together, first of many, hopefully. You know, when I get to the end of things, I tend to get reflective. I've talked about this before. At the end of college or seminary, I thought back on all the times that I spent studying and laughing with friends. When I've moved around the country or moved houses, I look through the bare rooms And thought about all the memories formed in one house or an apartment or some court. That's how I feel about Ecclesiastes. I spent this week studying the passage, but I also spent kind of flipping through the pages, thinking about the old passages, looking at how we handled them, how I spoke on them, whether or not I liked what I said. Thought about how my view of life has changed, and how I hope to continue to be changed by the Word of God. When I reflected, this is what I learned. Ecclesiastes attacks you at your core. It doesn't let go until you've really been changed. Franz Kafka wrote, A book must be an axe for the frozen sea inside us. Ecclesiastes is that axe for the Christian and the non-Christian. It strikes us at the center of our being and it wrecks whatever dream we have placed there thinking this is the important part. But now, now we've come to the end of the matter. Verses 9 through 14 take a step back. We get the words of what I have called the collector or the organizer. The author or editor of this book has collected the words of the preacher. And it's organized them for the benefit of all who read. And this collector has the last word. He wants a final summation to conclude this work that has been put forward. His concluding thoughts are more of an elaboration on all that we've heard in Ecclesiastes. It's not some contrasting opinion. But more specifically, they're an elaboration on the last application that we learned about last week. Last week, we saw the general application of the preacher. He came to the very end of his long speech, and he said to us, remember your creator in your youth. We spent a long time talking about how we are to remember our creator in many different ways. Remember it as an ease for a time in this life under the sun. Bringing us comfort, dealing with hardship in this life. I pointed us all to Jesus Christ, the creator and redeemer. He brings comfort. But here, here at the end of the matter, the collector and organizer wants to tell us how. How. How do you remember your creator? How does this collector and organizer want to tell you to remember your creator? How do you remember Jesus? What steps can you take? He gives us three steps. First is follow wisdom. Second is flee pride. And third is fear God. And each of these steps will help us remember this creator before us. It will help us walk through this life under the sun. So let's end this great book with a comforting map. A tour guide of sorts to guide us through this life. So verse 9, let's dive in. Verse 9 begins by pointing out the preacher has taught many things even beyond this book making him not only wise but also a great teacher. The wise don't only sit in a room reading or they don't go out experiencing life and thinking this is all there is to it. They take What they have learned and they share it. They teach, they build up other people towards wisdom. That has been the aim from the beginning. Teaching us wisdom in this life. So the first call our collector tells us may seem fairly obvious to us because of what has been said for the last twelve chapters, but it's necessary to reiterate follow after wisdom. Put it another way, the more we grow in knowledge, the more we apply that knowledge in life, the more we will remember God. So go out and pick up a book. Go out and experience life. Listen to stories of those older than you. Those who are older, hear the dreams of those who are younger than you. Chase down your hopes. Find an interesting part of life to explore. Learn to make bread. I've said that like five times, and I still haven't made bread myself. How about find out about 17th century Russian poetry? Just figure it out. What's going on with that? Learn about the philosophical turn of the 1960s. That's a big one. The world is going on around us and we can choose so many different areas to understand and to study. And as we learn more and we apply more, we will see an infinitely complicated world that screams out, someone is behind all of this. Someone is out there. Our creator. But it's not just the pursuit of wisdom that will drive us along because he elaborates his point. There are specificities that the collector lays out for us. The preacher was... Teaching wisdom, yes, but he was doing so in certain ways. He was calling people to follow after him in wisdom, but he was teaching them wisdom through, first, clarity. Clarity. The order of things is a great way to understand and grow in wisdom, our collector says. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, a worship service should be done decently and in good order. Why? For clarity's sake. If you were to walk into a service, or this service itself, and we were all speaking a different language, no one would give an interpretation. You'd be sitting there wondering, what is going on with these people? Or if we're singing some songs and no one provided any words for the songs and just presumed everyone knew it, you'd be left in complete confusion. There'd be no wisdom to glean from this service. The lack of clarity caused you to sit in confusion, miss any truth that may have been brought out in this. In the service. The same is true for all areas of life. We aren't handed calculus in first grade. We aren't taught Mozart when we first sit at a piano. They're far too complicated for beginners. Our jobs need clarity. When a boss comes up and tells you to go do something, he doesn't just say do it. He often gives you steps and helps how to do it. Clarity. Otherwise, we just spin our wheels. We fail to accomplish things. Our pursuit of wisdom needs to be orderly. Our desire for truth needs to be grounded. When a teacher steps in front of a classroom and teaches truth without a syllabus or with some lesson plan, the student really is lost, the teacher is lost, and everyone just is worse off for it. And so much of our ability to grow in wisdom is because of a lack of clarity. Either from the teaching we are sitting under, the book we're reading, or the lack of clarity of our own mind. We aren't prepared to hear and understand. We need to be taught how to understand things clearly. We can't presume we even have a mind to understand everything. That's why our church has a confession that says, yes, we want clear preaching, but also clear listening. Active listening. That means hearing and understanding the words of God, not just laying back and expecting to properly understand every little piece of truth given. It takes work to understand the word of God, and it takes work to follow after wisdom. Paul says later that God is a God of order. When things are orderly, we reflect the characteristics of God. This is pursuing wisdom. This is understanding how to live this life under the sun. How to remember our creator. It's to find order. But our preacher, or our collector goes on. Further pursuing wisdom. We can't stay too long. There's too much to go through. Our preacher sought to find words of delight, it says. What does that tell us? Tells us that we need to find beautiful things in this life. See, we appreciate order. A number of us are engineers. A number of us have math backgrounds and we think order is great. But maybe we miss a little bit of beauty. It's a big category. You can try and nail it down a little bit. Philosophers will tell you to actually avoid categorizing beauty into just our own perspective. Beauty is in the eye of beholder. Don't hold on to that. Because people from all ages and cultures have stood at St. Peter's Basilica and they look up and see the works of Michelangelo and they go, wow, that's beautiful. People from all across the planet have read the writings of Shakespeare and they've been moved to tears and to love and they say, wow, that's beautiful there's a sense of everyone recognizing beauty in an objective way we can say beauty attracts the senses it brings about an emotional response it pierces our heart with symmetry with images with clever words so to follow after wisdom is to embrace your emotions it's not to stifle them now that may be hard for some of us to hear but this is wisdom It understands emotions, it appreciates emotions, and it uses them properly. To follow after wisdom is to look for something that attracts your eye and makes you feel of a larger world, something greater than you. So watch a sun set after a thunderstorm. If you ever get a chance, go to Paris. Stand in front of Monet's Water Lily series. Just let it wash over you. Stand on the Great Wall of China and look back and forth at the horizon and think, how was this done? How long did this take? What kind of magnitude of work needed to be done by hand to create this? You learn to appreciate beauty in some magnificent ways. And more specifically, for our passage, learn to appreciate words. Hear how they sound. Not just in correct pronunciation, but in rhyme scheme. Or if it fits in a sentence. I don't know how many of you have felt that way. There are times in which you read a sentence and you go, why is that word there? It doesn't work. There could be something better that could fit. You don't even know how to describe how it doesn't fit. It just doesn't fit. You read things. You ask questions. Does this paragraph rise and fall? Does it cause a burning in my heart? Do tears come out of my eyes? Beauty is ineffable, and yet everyone has an example in their lives of something that is beautiful. Everyone. Doesn't that give us some picture of a beautiful creator? Doesn't wisdom tell us, there it is, that's how you remember your creator. You can see the beauty around you. Finally, as we follow after wisdom, our preacher uprightly wrote the words of truth. Now, what area are we missing? Part of our vision as a church. We've talked about goodness. We've talked, of, we've talked about truth. We've talked about beauty. The one thing we miss is goodness. And this is what it is. Uprightly writing the words of truth. To uprightly write the words of truth is to write and speak truth with honesty, with integrity. It's a strange concept because we don't often separate goodness and truth. If something is true, it's often good. But can we not fairly represent another person's beliefs? Can we not fairly describe someone's understanding of the world? You may argue against the veracity of a statement, but could you also say that it lacks depth? Does it lack nuance? Is this approaching wisdom? Is this understanding how we speak and how we walk and how we understand things? That is a big one, nuance. To follow after wisdom is to understand where people are coming from. I've heard it said among philosophers that those who debate, those who really want to argue through ideas, that they should be first able to describe the opposition's position better than them, before you even start the debate. That's how you properly understand. That's how you properly approach the words of truth. So I ask you, do you call the political liberal... Snowflake baby killers? Do you call the politically conservative racist hypocrites? Do you call Christians who worship different from you unbiblical and heretical? I think those are far from fair representations. They lack charity. They lack integrity. And you come across as uninterested in a conversation, you would rather just end it. You're not interested in pursuing wisdom. You're interested in calling people names. When you use those terms, you don't sound wise. You're not pursuing after wisdom. Rather, you are being unhonest. You're being harsh. And so our collector says at the end of the affair, be fair in your descriptions. Be honest in your representations. When confronted by an idea you don't understand, don't be afraid to say, I don't know. Don't be afraid to say, you know, I'm going to have to look that up. I don't want to bluster forward. Humility, humility is what pushes forward when we follow after wisdom. And speaking of humility, the second step our collector points us to how to remember our creator is to flee pride. Verse 11. To remember your creator, you need to flee from pride. And Calvin, John Calvin, in his introduction to the institutes of Christian religion, tells us when we are confronted by God, two things should happen. First, we see the holiness of God. We will see he as a creator, as a sustainer, one who is above all things. When we think about who God is and all that he has done, I often my mind goes to, to Old Testament characters who first embrace and see God. Moses asking to see God and God tells him, you would die if you saw my glory in all its worth. I remember God showing himself to Elijah on the mountain and the earthquakes and fire and wind and small whisper where God was. God is far more than we can ever describe. That's what happens when you remember your creator. You realize the holiness that is there in front of you. But that's the first thing that Calvin points us to. The second thing he says is we should be confronted by our own sinfulness. We will be confronted by how terrible we are in light of a holy God. And you can think of the prophet Isaiah here. Isaiah 6, when he's brought before God into the throne room, he looks upon God upon his throne, and his first statement is Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips and I come from a people of unclean lips. That's the kind of humility that will come from remembering your creator. You will continue to become more humble the more you remember your creator, the more you recognize who he is and who you are in relation to it. And so becoming humble is again laid out for us by our collector we have to look to the words of the wise, the ones who will point us forward, who will encourage us in their wisdom. Point us from ourselves and bring our Creator into view. And so he says, The words of the wise are like goads and nails. Now we all know what nails are. They're not the things at the end of our fingers, but the nails we put into walls. But what are goads? Goads are used by farmers, by people who work with animals. It can be really a whip, a stick, or any kind of blunt instrument. And it flicks a little bit of pain to cause an action. So if some cow is tilling the ground, some steer, they hit it with a goad to keep it moving along and keep it in a straight line. (laughs) What a beautiful image that is for the words of the wise. A slight sting to push us in the right direction. Isn't that true? When we're confronted by wisdom, it can hurt, it can bruise our hopes and dreams, it can puncture our understanding of the world and our own delusions of grandeur. And So let wisdom be a goad to you. Let it push you out of your own navel-gazing. When you're told to remember God, understand death is coming. When you're told to look beyond yourself, we are being pushed, being goaded along. I remember distinctly, in the last few months as I've been coming up to the pulpit to start preaching through Ecclesiastes, praying as I'm walking up there saying, let this not be too hard. There were times when I was preaching, I would stop and I would say, this is really tough. It's really hard. It's dark. It's in those times that we were being smacked around by the words of the the wise. Being pushed away from our comfortable views of life in the world. We're being told, this is where we are. This is what needs to happen. That's we're being goaded by these words of the wise. We're being pushed. And beyond that, we're also pierced. Pierced by the words of the wise. Nails are sharp. They're driven into wood or other material. The words of the wise are sharp. They pierce us. They pierce our hard hearts and our minds. They make us think. They make us feel. We need these wise words to do as I said in the beginning, to take an axe to the ice ocean that is within our heart. We need them to push us and break us from our fixed position. So you can ask yourself, what is a deep truth that I hold on to that isn't supported by scripture? Maybe it's political. Maybe it's ethical. Maybe it's about worship. Maybe it's about feeling you, there's some feeling you have about God. Maybe it's something as simple as a relationship that you have with someone. Wisdom is here to pierce that notion, to rip your faults away from you, to attach you to a stronger foundation. And it says it right there, verse 11. Like nails firmly fixed. When we have been pushed around and our worldview has been torn down, where do we want to be? A safe firm, stable place. So lately, there's been a lot of Christian deconstruction happening around the world, but mainly in the West. Friends of Jessica and I, just in these past two weeks, we've seen videos of people we went to school with, both undergrad and seminary, who have come out publicly to announce they have abandoned the faith. I always use metaphors when they're talking about where they are currently. They say something along the lines of, I'm in a river, or I'm in an ocean, Just going with the flow, treading water, letting the truth roll over them. Why would you want to be in such a fluid place? That's what I always walk away with. When I lose my foundation, all I want is something big and strong to hold on to. To nail myself to. That is what the words of the wise do. They secure us when we are drifting. They ground us when we're floating. The wisdom given in this book has shifted our ground. We felt as though we were standing upon shifting sand. But these last few chapters are calling us to find security and stable ground on our Creator. Look to your Creator. Remember your Creator in all of this. So, remember your Creator as you are wishing for stability, as the words have torn you away, as you think about your humility, as you think, I can't figure it out myself. Nail yourself to the creator. Because without God, we will be left to chase our own understanding. Never find stable ground, hopping from place to place, finding ourselves faltering time and time again. That's exactly what verse 12 tells us that happens. It warns us, beware looking beyond all these things that have been given to you. The pursuit of wisdom is good, but the pursuit of knowledge for knowledge's sake, that's a dangerous game to play. There's a scene in The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis that's actually very reminiscent of this particular warning in verse 12. Lewis describes a man. He's in the suburbs of heaven. And he's invited by God, or the Spirit of God, to enter heaven. He's kind of standing in these two lines, wondering, where exactly am I going to go? He says, come, come into heaven. But he's warned, there will be no atmosphere of inquiry, for I bring you to the land not of questions, but of answers. You shall see the face of God here. But the man, the man was not ready to let go of his quest for questions, to think about, and to have ideas to study about. He wanted to keep thinking. And so he says, We must all interpret those beautiful words in our own way. For me, there is no such thing as a final answer. The free wind of inquiry must always continue to blow through the mind. Must it not? Remember, this man is speaking to God himself. So God tells him, Listen, once you were a child, once you knew what inquiry was, There was a time when you asked questions because you wanted answers and you were glad when you had found them. Become that child again, even now. And the man responds, when I became a man, I put away childish things. And the conversation suddenly ends and the scene shifts because he says to God, oh, I have an appointment. I have a discussion group to go to in hell. And he leaves. What a scene. See, I have a lot of books. Less than I want, but I have a lot of books. And I can say that this verse makes me uncomfortable. This verse is a nail and a goad to me. I need this wisdom to remind me that talking about things isn't all there is. I need to be reminded that knowledge through books won't give me the answer. The only answer that will satisfy us will be God himself in Jesus Christ. That is humility. Stepping outside of your mind, stepping outside and saying, I am done with being in here, but rather looking to God. That is where it is. So remember your Creator. That's what our collector says. From there, we get to the end of the matter, the final point. All things must come to an end, and here is the end for our preacher and our collector. I'll read verse 13 and 14 one more time. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment and every secret thing, whether good or evil. The conclusion of all things. We've learned so much, at least I have. We've been pushed, we've been pierced, pulled, we've lost our footing, but this is the end. Fear God and keep his commandments. Our last point, I made reference to a number of occasions when God and man saw one another. Isaiah, Moses, Elijah, the general reaction of those occurrences were shock, it was awe, it was fear. To fear God is to remember him completely, is what I would say. This is why he says it is the end of the matter. Fear God. It's wrapped up all of it. As Calvin told us, when we see God, we understand his holiness and our sinfulness. We become afraid, not in the way that a child is really afraid, but more in the way that is larger, it's deeper. The fear of God is about respect. It's about authority and praise and awe. It's so much of our person. The fear of God is to reckon yourself as too small and too insignificant to do anything in light of this awesome God. And yet... It's also to recognize that this God cares for you and loves you. It's both of those. We're too small to do anything and yet he loves us. It's a feeling of someone being so completely powerless in a situation and yet they are being shown infinite love and kindness. It's a strange fear that drives us to our knees. It's a strange idea that brings tears to our eyes. It is beautiful in its own way and it's wise in another way. It makes us wonder. And the fear of God looks through many lenses. First, our collector says it looks through the commandments of God. And our collector tells us to follow the commandments of God, but it's not out of a great burden. It's not out of some desire to do all that we could and hopefully stand before God in rightness. But rather, it's out of a desire to live the best life that they could live. This is an odd concept for many of us because, for me at least, growing up, the commandments of God were a burden. I grew up in a Christian home. The commands were said to us, Keep in line. Don't fail these. You screw them up, you're in trouble judgment on me in my life. We use the commands of God in that way at times. Just earlier in the service, right, we had the reading of the law and we felt the judgment of God upon us, recognizing our own sin in light of his command. But this verse tells us that we are to keep his commands because it is the duty of all mankind. It is the benefit, is another translation, of all mankind. Do you want to live a flourishing and fulfilling life? Do you wish to feel happiness and find great joy in all your work? Follow the commands of God. His commands are for the benefit of mankind. They are a duty. They do point out where we stand in relation to our holy God, but they also make life better. Loving our neighbor brings joy to us and joy to the world around us. It also brings glory to God caring for those who are less fortunate, those who are oppressed, this makes the world better. This also makes our life better. Those are commands of God. Pursuing justice is a good thing and will bring goodness to our lives. The commands of God are the duty and joy of all mankind. We can stand in awe and fear of a God who has given us perfect commands that will make our lives better and the world better for it. Second, The second lens that our collector looks through at the commands of God and to fear God is that last line of Ecclesiastes. We can't ignore that the commands still bring a little bit of judgment. And it's a horrifying one. It's rather fitting that the last line of Ecclesiastes is actually one of the most fearful lines there is in the Bible. God will bring every deed into judgment, every secret thing, whether good or evil. I was reading a story this week about two young friends stumbling upon a dead body. It was a coming-of-age tale, which often happens, where the, the height of the story is something really terrible happens, and these two younger people are adults after the fact. And so they had encountered this body, and the boys spoke after the encounter that they would never speak of this again, that their friendship was bonded for life And this moment would never be heard by anyone else. They were going to take this to the grave. According to Ecclesiastes, God saw that. Whether good or evil, God saw it. He knows us inside and out. He created us and he can see all that we have done and all that we think about doing. That is scary. That's a horrifying thing to think about. Calvin, again, calls our hearts idol factories. Making idols out of everything that we think about and do. That judgment, that vulnerability will bring fear to people. It will scare us. An all-powerful God who created all things will bring judgment to this world. That's where he hits hard. And That's how Ecclesiastes ends. in A bit of a fearful and awe-producing moment. But, I know all of you are smart, relatively, because I'm not that smart. But, all of you are smart, and you saw that I skipped over a line. You saw it. Verse 11, what does it say? What did I miss? Those who are paying attention saw, verse 11, the wise, humbling, and fearful words are all given by the one shepherd. Who's the collector talking about here? Because he's not talking about the king. He's not talking about just Solomon or something else. He's pointing to something greater. The fact that the translators themselves put this in uppercase, the one shepherd. What is going on here? That's one of the most beautiful moments in all of Ecclesiastes. In the midst of a harsh statement on judgment, on commands, on pursuing wisdom, all these things that have been pressed upon us, after we've been goaded and pierced, torn down and secured to something sturdy, after we felt fear and humility, all those things are done not only by a God who invokes fear and judgment, but by a shepherd, a loving shepherd, the one shepherd. Or as the psalmist writes, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Or, as Jesus Christ says, I am the good shepherd. See, to remember our creator is to remember our good shepherd. That is the end of the matter. He gives us all wisdom and understanding. Paul says the foolishness of God is far greater than the wisdom of man. That is who is giving us wisdom and understanding. That is who is goading us along with his words. He is the one whose words pierced our hearts and secured us To a strong foundation. He is the one who has shown us the fullness of love, joy, fear, and righteousness. By being God himself. And he did all this by being pierced for us. The cross of Jesus Christ is what leads us to remember our creator. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is what puts the fear of God in us. It is the wisdom of the shepherd that he laid down his life for us. It is the humility of our creator to die for us. That makes us look beyond ourselves. So as we come to the end of the matter, this is what I say. When we're confronted by harsh wisdom, when we're goaded along and pierced, when our ground is shifting and our world is turned upside down, when it feels like fear is piercing us, to our depth. Find security in the words of our good shepherd. Come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is true and good. and It is your wisdom that you have given us. Lord, build us up and encourage us. Help us to follow after wisdom. To flee pride and to fear You, bring the cross into view. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.